So far, we've covered the commandments in three parts. First, Exodus 19, beginning at 20, we set the stage which reminded us that before God makes any demands on anybody, God shows God's self to be a God of grace, of mercy, of compassion, of salvation. God saves God's own people and calls them to be a priestly people. Grace comes first. And then the next week we heard about the first table of the law, first three commandments which deal with our relationship between ourselves and God, how we are to see God. They remind us that we need to practice a kind of atheism in regard to any person, group, nation, or anything else other than God that would demand our allegiance. Then we talked about commandments four to eight, which are part of the second table of the law, which govern our relationships with our neighbors. And these, the purpose of these commandments is to protect our neighbors from ourselves. And here we come to a fourth part, the crooks of the commandments existence. The ninth and 10th commandments are concerned not with our actions, but with our thoughts especially those that have to do with what belongs to our neighbor. God doesn't just want human actions to be right. God wants our hearts, our minds, our thoughts to be right as well. But this raises a question. Why should God be so concerned with our thoughts? After all, if we treat our neighbors well, go to church regularly, if we give, if we volunteer our time, then why should our thoughts matter at all? Besides, sometimes we can't even control our thoughts. Sometimes the thoughts I have, and I bet you have, would make a sailor blush. But they leap unbidden into the brain, like, how did that get there? And besides, it's not like we act on these thoughts. Why should God be so concerned with something that we all have a hard time controlling? The key to understanding these coveting commandments is that they mirror the first commandment. The Ten Commandments begin with God's divine nature. God is a God who saves God's people. God administers justice and shows mercy. These last commandments show us our fallenness. They reveal the old Adam and Eve within each one of us, complete with the thoughts that leap unbidden into our brains, thoughts that desire what belong to our neighbor. To borrow from Charles Dickens' description of Ebenezer Scrooge, the old sinful self in each of us is a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. And this old, covetous self is as ancient as humanity. In the garden, Eve saw that the forbidden fruit was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. The word, by the way, for desire there is the same word translated in Exodus as covet. The bitter fruit of coveting, of envy, is behind the first murder when Cain kills his brother Abel. Jacob covets his brother's birthright and blessing and obtains them, causing Jacob to have to flee from his wrathful brother Esau. 
Jacob's family. Jacob's family is a mess. It's a hotbed of coveting, envy, and hatred. Between his wives and among his sons, jockeying for the position of favorite. By the time we get to the Exodus, the pattern of coveting is well established. Continues with Israel's kings. Probably the most famous story of coveting in the Bible is that of David and his coveting of Bathsheba, another man's wife. Continues today. You could say that coveting is one of the foundations of our contemporary economy. Without it, the whole system would collapse. After all, if people don't covet, they're less likely to buy. Although maybe people are buying too much now with inflation, but that's just beyond my scope. The drive to covet is built into the American marketplace. I want, I want it now. For instance, my daughter has one of those baby Einstein books. Now they, they play classical music. And one of the tunes caught my attention, so I looked it up on YouTube and started listening. So I'm listening. It's uh, Telemann's uh, from his water music. And suddenly an ad breaks in, and it's this loud. <laughs> you know, the music was at a reasonable volume, but not the ad. I don't remember the content, but it's not really important. Everything, all kinds of things get advertised. All things to try to trigger the I want part of our brains. Now, belts. Seen ads for belts? Okay. Cars, car insurance, beer, smartphones, men's health products, and of course, politicians. Though the thing, these, these ads all have one thing in common. They create dissatisfaction. They make us want more. And their product, as it turns out, is the cure to the dissatisfaction they create. Rinse and repeat. There truly is no end to the drive and to the desire for something else. We don't have a chance for hearts at peace, for hearts of shalom, except in Christ. Here's the bad news, as if I haven't said enough bad news, but here's the bad news. We can't keep any of these commandments perfectly or even well a lot of the time. We can't do it. And our good deeds don't outweigh our bad ones. There's no scales with God's justice. In fact, as the Apostle Paul writes, our knowledge of what the law says we should do often makes things worse for us. Paul writes, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I wouldn't have known sin if there hadn't been for God's law. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. That's a bitter irony indeed. Sin takes the good commandments of God and uses them for its own purpose. Paul writes further, Sin seizing an opportunity in the commandment deceived me, and through it, it killed me. Knowledge of sin, according to Paul, increases it. Wow. But it is in our death and condemnation that we receive good news and the best news. What has been condemned and drowned and killed in us is the old creature, 
the old Adam and Eve, the, the old self that always wants to justify itself, that always wants to say, but I'm a good person. The old self that is always trying to weigh things out. That old self is dead in Christ. Despite its periodic attempts to emerge forth and wreak havoc, it's gone, it has no future. And a new self is raised. Luther writes in the small catechism that this new self, God's new self, is raised every single day. Baptism happens once, but its effects are repeated over a lifetime. Over a lifetime. Every day, that old sinful self is killed once again. And a new self rises forth. A self that is free. Free. A self and a heart that's filled with God's shalom, with being, being whole. A new person. Free of the shackles of envy, hatred, and coveting what is not ours. A self free from judgments, from needing to be a mere good person. Now we can be God's person. God's own person with God's own heart. And this new person, God's person, isn't some kind of weird, creepy, assimilated creature like the Borg from Star Trek. You remember that? This new person is nothing less than your full, true self. Your full, true self. As C.S. Lewis writes in the Screwtape Letters, when God talks of losing their selves, he means only abandoning the clamor of their self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality and boasts that when they are wholly his, they will be themselves more than ever. The old sinful self is killed. A new self rises. So here we are at the end of the law, which is Christ and our new selves in him. This new self, our true self, with hearts of shalom, is a self free to love. To be, indeed, the love of Christ, not out of obligation or because we willed it as if such a thing were possible, but because God made it so in us. God has made us God's people relish that gift of freedom. Relish the gift of your own true self. Amen.